Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack, and today's episode is our monthly Ask Austin Anything for May 2022. So if you're not familiar, every single month I source questions from listeners just like you, and I pick a few to answer here on the podcast. So if you want to submit a question for future episodes like this, I actually consolidated our forms into one single place where you can submit questions. So you can go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AMA, and you can ask your question there. The link is also below in the show notes. But I so look forward to these episodes every single month. And I'm also super grateful that you all out there are listening and willing to submit questions for me to answer because without you, this podcast wouldn't exist. So I just wanted to start with a little thank you. Now, today's episode is going to be awesome. I say that for all of them, but I'm really excited to answer the five questions that we have today spanning everything from phone screens to interview preparation to obvious opportunities in your career, as well as my favorite hot sauce. So without further ado, let's dive in. Our first question here comes from David, who's asking, what is the single most important thing to convey in an initial screening call with a recruiter? So I love this question because people tend to overcomplicate the phone screen. And when they do that, they actually decrease their chances of getting through to the next round. So here's the deal. Phone screens are aimed at figuring out one specific thing, and that is whether or not you are qualified enough to deserve a deeper dive with the full hiring team. So to provide more context there, when we think about a phone screen and the hiring process in general, when a company brings a candidate into deeper rounds of interviews, that requires a lot of time and resources from the actual team, right? The hiring manager, people on the hiring team, they have to take time away from their jobs to sit down with these candidates in order to interview them and see if they're a good fit for the role. And they're not going to want to do that with people who aren't qualified or don't actually have a legitimate shot at the role. So that is the goal of the recruiter and the phone screen to determine whether you are actually qualified enough to have a legitimate shot at the role. And the other thing to understand is that the recruiter is typically given a pretty specific outline of what to look for from the hiring manager. So they are really looking to check some specific boxes around the type of experience that you have, the type of results that you've driven, and the value that you can bring to the table for this company. So the single most important thing that you can convey to a recruiter in a phone screen is that you are qualified for this role. And the best way that I found to do that is to focus your answers on the actual job description itself, because that's usually going to be fairly aligned with the checklist. So before I jump on the phone screen, in my preparation, I'm going to pull up the job description, and I'm basically going to go line by line through the entire description. And I'm going to separate the qualifications in the job description into two buckets, basically need to have and nice to have. And for every need to have qualification, I'm gonna think of a question that my interviewer might ask me. So for example, if the job description says that this person is going to be responsible for creating partnerships with cloud-based SaaS companies, that's likely gonna be a need to have, right? This person's role is gonna focus on partnerships specifically with cloud-based SaaS companies. So a question that the recruiter might ask me is, can you share an example of a time when you facilitated a successful technology partnership? So by doing this, I'm essentially teeing up questions that the interviewer is likely to ask me that relate directly to what they're hoping to see in this candidate and what that candidate will be doing if they get hired for this job. So the great part about this is when I'm done doing that, when I'm done going through the entire job description and coming up with all the questions that relate to the need to have and potentially nice to have qualifications, 
I can then draft answers to those questions. And in those answers, I want to do two things. So I obviously want to illustrate my value, right? That's one of the things. But the second thing I want to do is tie it back to the role. So in my answer, I might say something like, in preparation for this interview, I did a lot of research on the role. And I know that a major goal for this hire is going to be creating partnerships with cloud-based SaaS companies. So I want to share an example with you of a time that I did that in a previous role where we were able to get X result, right? So now what we're doing is we're tying our experience and our results directly back to the role. And we're also showing this person that we've invested the time in researching the job and understanding what they're looking for, what they care about. And that's going to go a long way to checking the boxes that you need in order to impress the recruiter and make yourself qualified enough for those deeper rounds. So that's a great question, David. I hope that response gives you a bit of a a tactical exercise that you can go through to help you crash more of these phone screens, get into deeper rounds, and land more job offers. The second question we have is in a similar vein. It comes from Liesl, and she's asking, what is the best way to practice for job interviews? So obviously, I just gave you a little bit of a tactic that you can use in the last answer, but that is really, really specific. So to answer this next question, I want to zoom out a bit. And focus on interviews in general, because most of the interviews that we go on are made up of the same set of questions or similar questions, right? So if we focus on the 80-20 rule, where basically, you know, 20% of the inputs are generating 80% of the outputs, if we can focus on the questions that were asked in pretty much every single interview, that gives us a leg up in terms of runway for us to prepare answers, rehearse them, refine them, memorize them, and practice them. So that is my starting point. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write out the five to 10 questions that I'm asked in every single interview, right? Why do you want to work here? Tell me about yourself. What's your biggest weakness? Tell me about a time you fail. Tell me about a time you saw success. All of these different questions that tend to come up in some form or another in these different interviews. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down and first off, stream of consciousness, just write out an answer, right? write out an example that I think might be a fit for that specific question. And then I'm just going to leave it for 24 hours. And the next day, I'm going to come back and I am going to look at that answer. I'm going to revise it. I'm going to refine it. And then I'm going to leave it for 24 hours. And then I'm going to rinse and repeat. So every day I'm going to come back and I'm going to work to revise and refine my answer. And then once I have that answer in a good spot, I'm going to start to memorize it. So the best way that I found to do this is just to start by looking at the answer in front of you and just talking through it out loud a few times and then moving to a place where you start to try to do it from memory. So maybe you have your screen, you know, turned to the side, you try to rehearse this answer. If you need to to refer to the answer on the screen, you can always look back, you can check your notes, but do your best to try to regurgitate this answer from memory. Once you get to the point where you have it fully memorized and you can deliver it from memory, the next thing that I want you to do is actually pull out your webcam and start recording yourself. You know, especially today when a lot of interviews are happening virtually, one of the biggest things you can do is see how you come across over video. And what you really want to nail here is your delivery and your emphasis and your body language and the way you're gesticulating, right? All of this stuff impacts the way that people perceive your answer and the information, but not many people actually take the time to review reflect and improve this aspect of their answer. So what I do is I'd sit down with some sort of recording software and I'd record yourself delivering the answers if you were in an interview. And then you can actually watch the replay and you can self-diagnose, you can self-analyze and assess and improve based off of that. But the other thing that you can do is actually send it to a friend, maybe one answer per person, because if we send one person, you know, 10 answers and they have to spend an hour reviewing all of them and then another hour giving feedback, they're likely not going to do that. But if you can say, you know, hey, so-and-so, 
can you just take a look at this one answer? It's three minutes long. And if you could just provide some feedback, that'd be awesome. Now we can start to get some feedback from other people on an answer that we spent a lot of time refining. So most of the kinks, most of the obvious low-hanging fruit advice should be taken care of. And now what you're going to get is some deeper advice from other people who are seeing this for the first time. So this tends to be one of the most effective ways that I found to start practicing for job interviews, because what this allows you to do is step into almost any interview and be able to succeed, or at least give yourself a really good chance of succeeding without much additional prep. And what that does is create additional time for you so that when you do get into deeper rounds and when you do start to land these interviews, you can spend that additional time that you would have otherwise spent doing all of this work. You can spend that on personalizing your answers and your narrative and your story for this specific role and this specific company. So if you do that, I think you're gonna see a lot more success in your interviews. I also think you're gonna be a lot more confident and you're gonna better be able to handle the nerves that come with a really high pressure interview at a dream company. So great question there from Liesl. Thank you so much for asking. And there was a little bit of a high level overview for job interviews and then something a little bit more in the weeds for that, that first answer as well. So I just wanted to kick things off on the interview side of things, but now we're gonna make a little bit of a shift to Justin's question. And Justin is asking, what major opportunity to improve a person's career is sitting right in front of their face, but most people are missing? And I would have to say that this is content creation. What I've seen in terms of a correlation between people who are generating tons of amazing opportunities, who are always seeming to land the best jobs, working at the best companies, or crushing it in their other ventures, whether they're passion projects, side hustles, or entrepreneurial ventures, the vast majority of those people are finding a way to create in some capacity. So that could be writing blog posts for a personal blog. That could be a podcast that they've started. That could be an interview series that they do. That could be any number of things. In some cases, that's just simply journaling for themselves. But then if they take the next step to sharing some of those learnings and some of those reflections that come from that journaling, that's really where the magic happens. Because Content creation is networking at scale. You know, I've done a lot of things in my day when it comes to networking, and I've also coached a ton of people on networking. And I can tell you that, you know, you can do the in-person events and that might lead to maybe a couple of connections here or there. You can start to reach out, you know, cold email, do all that stuff. And that has a, a better chance of getting you some connections. But truly, content creation is the most effective form of networking that I've found to date. And most people aren't doing it. And the reason they're not doing it is because they have a lot of these self-limiting beliefs. They feel like they have nothing to offer. They don't know what to say, or they're worried that people might judge them. And the truth is, every single person who is creating right now, whose content you follow, whose newsletter you get, whose podcast you listen to, all of those people had the exact same self-limiting beliefs at the beginning, but they just decided to get started anyways. And really what I've seen is that when people think about the upside of creation and the downside of creation, most of the downside is stuff that we create in our own heads. All of the examples that I just mentioned, right? And I think when you find that once you start creating, a lot of that stuff never actually comes to bear. And then it truly is 100% upside. And the beautiful part about this is that you get to take your value and your message and you get to convey it in the exact way that you want. And it's going to be seen by tons of people who matter, right? Who can influence your ability to move up in the world in whatever capacity that is. So when I started creating content at Microsoft, it was a game changer because 
all of a sudden people in our department and in management and even, you know, at, at the highest levels of management would come to me and say, hey, Austin, I've seen your content on LinkedIn. You know, I really like it, uh, blah, 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 blah. And they would start asking me questions. And all of a sudden I had people coming to me and starting conversations with me. And that was just a natural pathway to networking and building relationships within the department and within other departments that created so many opportunities for me at Microsoft that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And outside of that, I had other creators, other entrepreneurs reaching out to me and asking questions or reaching out to me and asking if I could be on their podcast or if they could interview me. And that helped me get even more visibility, right? And so that's the beautiful thing about content creation is when you put your message out there, what happens is you start to attract like-minded people. And these people can come from anywhere. Your relationships are no longer based on proximity, right? Who sits in the couple cubicles next to you? Who eats lunch at the same time you do? Who's working in the same office? Instead, we open ourselves up to basically the entire global globe. And now we can start to find people who get us, who share the same values, who are on the same path, people who are going to support us and challenge us in the right ways and honestly become really, really awesome friends, right? Genuine, authentic friendships. Uh, That's one of the biggest benefits I found from content creation. So I think if you are willing to take that leap and overcome those fears and create in spite of that, the amount of opportunities and the amount of ROI that you'll see on the content that you share is absolutely insane. And you don't need hundreds or thousands of followers or likes on your posts in order for this to make a dent. You literally just need to get started. I know people that I've started coaching who have literally single digit likes or double digit likes, you know, 25, 35 likes on their posts who are getting coaching clients, who are getting more opportunities internally, who are landing speaking gigs, who are doing all this stuff. So again, you don't need to have a massive follow or all of these reactions in order for this to work, you really just need to get started. So I really love this question from Justin, and I hope that it encourages at least one person listening to this podcast who's been thinking about creating to actually take that leap and actually get started. Our next question here comes from Victoria, who's asking, since you've left the corporate world and started your own business, what are the top three things you think are most important to be successful? So I love this question because this is such a great way to learn exactly what specific tactics you might be able to apply to your own situation. And this is a great question to ask pretty much anybody who's in a position that you want to be in, right? So my three things are, one, you need to have an action bias. Two, you need to have a beginner's mindset. And three, you need to network your ass off. Those are are basically the, the summary. So to dive deeper into each of those, the first around action bias What I've seen time and again from the people who are in the 1% of what they're doing, whether they are creators, whether they're entrepreneurs, people who are in that sort of space, these people, they take action first and then they ask questions, they ask for permission, they figure things out later. And the reason why this is so important is because too many times perfection and over-analysis gets in the way of actually shipping something. I know so many people who are waiting for the idea in their head to basically become perfect before they put it out there in the world. And the problem is that's simply not how the world works. Truthfully, you're not gonna know what works until you actually put it out there. And I see that every day. Sometimes I post on LinkedIn and I have no idea if my post is gonna do well or if it's gonna do poorly. But the important thing is that I put it out there because I'm never gonna get that data unless I actually take action on it. And what I see from a lot of new creators is they spend hours and hours and hours trying to craft something that's gonna go, quote, viral. And the thing about virality is that it's fairly random. Like, yes, you can use some best practices. There are some tactics and common threads that go into a viral post, but there are plenty of posts that use all of those tactics
tactics and best practices that don't go viral. And there are plenty of posts that don't use those tactics and best practices that do go viral. So at the end of the day, the best way to go viral is to simply invest in the market continually, right? Time in the market beats timing the market. And so what we want to do is just stay consistent and put stuff out there. And that's true for content. That's true for products. That's true for ideas. That's true for opportunities on your website. Like any part of creation or entrepreneurship has to do with putting a whole bunch of stuff out there, collecting data on that stuff, and then letting the data tell you what's working and what's not. So if you look at somebody and you say, man, that person always seems to hit it right. What you're not seeing is the 99% of effort behind the scenes and 99% of stuff that they put out there that didn't work that eventually led to the 1% of stuff that did work for them. So if you want to win in this game of entrepreneurship and brand building and all of that, the key is to not be right every single time. The key is to just take action, put stuff out there, ship stuff, whether it's great, good, average, sort of okay or not so great. Just put something out there, do that consistently, collect data, and then act on the data. The second thing was a beginner's mindset. So when we're trying out new things, right, when we're throwing a bunch of stuff up against the wall, we actually have to dive in and we have to give it a good effort, right? We have to put a decent sample size through this system before we can decide whether it works or not. And if we just assume that we know things already, we're going to be in for a pretty rude awakening because it's been my experience that every single channel, no matter how similar it seems to another channel, has its own nuances and has its own strategies. So just to give you an example of this, right? I've been creating content on LinkedIn for four plus years now, and I've grown my following from 3,000 people to 1.2 million people in that time. And recently I jumped over to Twitter. So I could have showed up on Twitter and said, I know how to do this. Like, I know how to write great content. I have a million followers on another platform. Like, this should be no problem. All I have to do is just do what I'm doing on LinkedIn on Twitter. And if I had done that, it wouldn't have worked. And I've actually seen a lot of other people on LinkedIn making the jump to Twitter who are struggling to see traction because basically what they're doing is just taking their LinkedIn posts, they're copying them into Twitter, they're pasting them, and then they're just pressing the tweet button. And that's not really how Twitter works. There are nuances in the way that you write posts and in the way that people want to receive posts and in the way that you market and promote those posts and engage with other people on the platform. And so in order to be successful, you have to understand those nuances. So the first thing that I did when I started on Twitter was I wrote about 60 tweets. I took a whole week. I cleared my schedule. I wrote 60 tweets. So I had a backlog and I said, look, this is going to be my test set. I'm going to throw all this stuff out there and I'm going to see it was a wide variety of topics. It was a wide variety of formats and styles and themes. And I said, this is going to be the, the wide net that I cast. And I'm going to throw this out there without any expectations. I don't expect followers. I don't expect growth. I don't expect virality. I don't even expect any real traction. What I'm going to get from these is data. Some of these are going to do better than others. And some of these are going to do worse than others. And what I need to do is understand which ones do better and then how I can double down on that. So I scheduled all of those out. And then what I did was I went and I tried to find people who had crushed the Twitter game, people who had grown to 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 followers in the last year or so. And I tried to connect with them and learn from them. And I actually ended up connecting with some really, really, really awesome people who were really happy to share the stuff that they did and their different strategies. And through that, what I learned to, to understand was 
how their strategies, how their tactics, how their content creation systems and processes differed from what I did on LinkedIn. And that allowed me to bridge the gap between here's what I know and what I'm really good at on LinkedIn. And here is what I need to do in order to convert that to you know be successful on Twitter. And if I had just shown up and said, I know how to do this. I have more followers than all of you people on this platform. And I don't care about you know what you know or what you do. I'm just going to show up and everybody should you know get to know me because I already have this massive brand. I would have completely failed. I would have completely flopped and I wouldn't have seen the success that I have seen on Twitter so far. But because I was willing to show up and say, I'm brand new to this, everybody on this platform who even has, you know, I had nine followers when I started my Twitter account. Everybody who has 10 followers on this platform has has a larger audience than I do, and they probably have more knowledge than I do. And so I need to learn from pretty much everybody that I can on this platform in order to be successful. And by doing that, by having that mindset, I was able to grow from zero to, I think I'm right around 28,000 followers at the time of this recording in a matter of a, a couple of months. And that is truly because I showed up with the beginner's mindset. So that's the second thing. The third thing that I would say is important is networking your ass off. So this obviously may not come as a surprise to many of you, given everything that I talk about in the job search, but whether it's job searching, whether it's starting a business, whether it's building a brand on social media or a website or anywhere else, there is nothing out there that is going to have a bigger impact on your ability to accelerate your results than relationships. Relationships with other people are going to unlock so much for you. They're going to unlock funding if you want that for your startup. They're going to unlock introductions to other people who already have established audiences who will have you on their podcast or who will interview you for their blog or who will start engaging with your social content, right? They'll open the door to conversations where you can learn from other people who have gone down the path before you, who can share those insights, what mistakes to avoid, what things to focus on, what everybody's talking about that doesn't work, all of these different things. So truly, your network is your net worth in pretty much anything that you're doing. And the best thing that you can do is get out there and build super strong relationships with as many people in this space as you can. And you should try to prioritize people who are a few steps ahead of you. So you don't want to try to find people who are way, 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 way down the path, right? If you're just starting out on a platform or if you're just starting a business, you don't want to necessarily find people who have, you know, a million followers or a business that's running at 100 to $500 million ARR, right? You want to find people who have 10,000, 20,000 followers, or maybe their business is 12 to 24 months down the road from where yours is. Those people are going to have much more relatable to advice to your specific situation. You're going to learn a heck of a lot more from them. And those are the people that you should be focusing on. But making networking and relationship building part of your daily routine, your daily habits, and your daily process, that is really what is going to set you apart from everybody else who's just out there trying to do it on their own, trying to figure it out, and saying they don't need help from anybody else. So those are the three things that I think are most important when it comes to being successful. And Victoria, thank you so much for asking that question. I had a lot of fun answering it. And our last question comes from David, who's asking, I read the other day that you like hot sauce. Yes, I do. He's asking, what are your top three brands? So actually in our fridge upstairs right now, if you open the doors, there are two shelves on one of the fridge door that are solely dedicated to hot sauce. And we have a whole bunch of different sauces. We have off the top of my head, we have Cholula, we have Secret Aardvark, we have Valentina, we have Crystal, we have Frank's. 
We have Tabatia, we have Sriracha, we have Green Market Hot Sauce, we have a whole bunch of others. And so I would say that my top three in terms of the ones that get used the most and then also ones that I like. So Cholula is hands down my favorite one. I find that that just goes the best on pretty much everything, except pizza, I'm 100% a Frank's person. Pizza and mac and cheese, I, I throw Frank's on, but pretty much everything else, I'm gonna be going for that Cholula bottle. And then the second one is actually a, a recent one that we found is a green one from, uh, I believe it's Miss Chaquanda's. It's their MX Green Hot Sauce. And I really like it. It's really flavorful. It's not too, too spicy. And and frankly, I'm not into the super spicy stuff. I actually have a really low heat tolerance. And so it's really funny because my wife, Lily, has a high heat tolerance. And so, so many people recommend hot sauces to me and I'll go out and buy them and I'm so excited and I try them and I'm like, holy crap, this is way too hot for me. So Lily ends up being the one who who ends up finishing the bottle. So I always try to find the ones that are definitely spicy to an extent. You know, if you're kind of a, a chili head and, and you're into the really spicy stuff, you disagree with that. But, um, you know, stuff that, that has a little bit of a kick but is really heavy on the flavor as well or vinegar. I'm like such a sucker for vinegar and all of those ones, Cholula, right? Frank's are all vinegar-based hot sauces. So I would say though, uh, the the Mishaquanda's uh, green MX sauces is the second one. And then the third one is probably Valentina because it offers just like a slightly different texture than some of the other more vinegar-based hot sauces. Um, it's a little thicker. And it has a really interesting and a bit of a different flavor profile from your typical hot sauces. So I would say that those are my top three, but I'm always, always open to recommendations. And if, if I don't end up eating it, Lily definitely will. So no worries there. But if you have some, feel free to send them my way, tweet them at me, hit me up on LinkedIn in the comments. Definitely feel free to, to share those recommendations because I'm totally open to creating a third shelf in our fridge. Uh, although I, I don't know if Lily would be totally cool with that. But those are my top three hot sauces right now. And David, thank you for the question. I always like to end on a fun one if we can, but that'll wrap it up for the Ask Austin Anything episode for this month, May, 2022. And as always, if you have questions that you want me to answer on these episodes, feel free to now go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AMA. The link is also in the show notes. Feel free to submit your question there. And I'm gonna handpick a couple of them every single month to answer in the Ask Austin Anything episode. So as always, thank you for listening. I am so grateful that you tune into this podcast and that you listen to these episodes and that you submit these questions. These are some of the most fun episodes and one of my favorite parts about the podcast. So thank you for letting me continue to do this. And I will see you in the next episode of the podcast. 